Um, so as I shared with the kids, uh, today we are stepping into the story of David and Goliath. Um, and where we're going to pick up the story is kind of right at that point um, where David um, has entered the scene. Uh, the Goliath had been, it was 40 days that Goliath had been coming out and taunting the Israelite people. 40 days that the Israelite people had been so scared and paralyzed, they had no idea what to do with Goliath. Um, until David uh, shows up and uh, feels called uh, to do something uh, himself. Um, and when we pick up the story uh, this morning, um, it's when King Saul has heard um, uh, of David's interest in taking on Goliath um, and summons David uh, to speak with him. So let us listen to the word God has for us this day from 1 Samuel 17. This Philistine, David told Saul, I, your servant, will go out and fight him. You can't go out and fight this Philistine, Saul answered David. You are still a boy, but he's been a warrior since he was a boy. Your servant has kept his father's sheep, David replied to Saul. And if, I, if, and if ever a lion or a bear came and carried off one of the flock, I would go after it, strike it, and rescue the animal from its mouth. If it turned on me, I would grab it at its jaw, strike it, and kill it. Your servant has fought both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has insulted the army of the living God. The Lord, David added, who rescued me from the power of both lions and bears, will rescue me from the power of this Philistine. Go, Saul replied to David, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own gear, putting a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David strapped his sword on over the armor, but he couldn't walk around well because he had never tried it before. I can't walk in this, David told Saul, because I've never tried it before. So he took them off. He then grabbed his staff and chose five smooth stones from the stream bed. He put them in the pocket of his shepherd's bag and with sling in hand went out to the Philistine. The Philistine got closer and closer to David and his shield bearer was in front of him. When the Philistine looked David over, he sneered at David because he was just a boy, reddish brown and good looking. The Philistine asked David, am I some sort of dog that you come at me with sticks? And then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said to David, and I'll feed your flesh to the wild birds and the wild animals. But David told the Philistine, you are coming against me with sword, spear, and scimitar. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel's army, the one you've insulted. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. Then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side. And all those gathered here will know that the Lord doesn't save by means of sword and spear. The Lord owns this war and he will hand all of you over to us. The Philistine got up and moved closer to attack David and David ran quickly to the front of the line to face him. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. He slung it, and it hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone penetrated his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. And that's how David triumphed over the Philistine with just a sling and a stone, striking the Philistine down and killing him. And David didn't even have a sword. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath, and finished him off. Then David cut off the Philistine's head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. So when David came back from killing the Philistine, Abner sent, him, sent for him and presented him to Saul. The Philistine's head was still in David's hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, my boy? I'm the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem, David answered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So as we have named this, uh, this day, this week, as we um, are in this Lenten season, we're going to be on this journey of stones. Um, like our story today, each week our scripture will be one in which a stone plays an important role in the story or serves as an important metaphor onto which we can hold. The invitation to us is to sit with the stories of scripture and to also sit with the story of our life. For the Lenten season is one of reflection and repentance a chance to stop and examine our own lives so that we might be transformed by God's grace once more. We're journeying together on the path that leads to the cross, following Jesus as he walks it, recognizing each week how this path is paved with the stones of our own sin, those ways we live counter to God and God's purposes, those ways we harm ourselves and one another, those ways we disconnect and divide ourselves from our neighbor and the God who is creator and lover of us all. This week, as we come to the story of David, we watch his faithful and brave response to the threat that loomed nine feet tall over the people of Israel, Goliath and the Philistine army who stood with him. As the story unfolds, David has this beautiful blend of trust in God's power and trust in the abilities God has given him, the person God has made him, that together allow him to faithfully respond to God's call in the moment. Watching David's faithfulness is an invitation for us to stop and look closely at our own lives. So today, I invite you to wonder with me. What are the Goliaths of our own times? If you had to put a name to what feels like it is looming nine feet over you, what would you say? What feels like a threat to you right now? Goliath ends up holding the Israelites practically hostage for 40 days. He leaves them stuck, unsure of what to do, paralyzed by their fear. Is there something that is doing the same to us, the same to you right now? What obstacle is getting in your way? keeping you from moving forward, keeping us from the freedom and life God longs for us. 
What is your Goliath? What are the Goliaths of our times? In the face of the giant, David is faithful. He's the last person anyone would expect for the task at hand, tangling with this giant warrior from the enemy army. He's the youngest son, a shepherd boy, not even a soldier, who has arrived at the battlefield just to bring his older brother's supplies at his father's request. Yet it's clear David knows who he is and also whose he is. Just a chapter earlier, he is secretly anointed by the prophet Samuel as a successor to the current King Saul. Because Saul did not respect and trust the power and word of God in previous battles, and God was ready for a new king. At David's anointing, it is clear he is one of the most unlikely candidates for the position. Again, the youngest brother of eight, a shepherd boy who originally wasn't even in the room as Saul listens for God's choosing. This is a common theme when it comes to God's picks in Scripture. Yet David is chosen just as he is. You sense the confidence the anointing has given David when we meet him here on the battlefield in Judah. He trusts God's power, God's choosing, and God's equipping. He enters battle not as an experienced warrior, simply as an experienced shepherd who has fought off lions and bears to protect his sheep. He sheds the ill-fitting armor Saul tries to get him to wear, choosing instead to rely on what he always has as a shepherd. His staff, his slingshot, five smooth stones gathered from the stream bed and placed in his shepherd's bag. He trusts that God has prepared him for this battle, he trusts that God has chosen him to fight it. He trusts that God's power will be with him. That on one level, it is up to him that he has an important part to play in the story. But that God is the one leading, directing, and empowering it all. When we face Goliaths in our world today, it's easy to be like the Israelites who cower in fear unwilling to act, paralyzed by the threat, stuck in the status quo. We think it is by our power alone that we must face what looms and fail to act because we know our power is not big enough to face the giant. When we fail to trust God's power, when we rely on our power alone, when we believe we are the ones in control and do not expect God's intervention in the here and now, y'all, we miss the mark and we miss our opportunity. God has a part for us all to play. And when we fail to trust God's power and spend our lives paralyzed on the sidelines, we slow down. We get in the way of God's purposes for us and our world. One of the things that looms, casts its shadow over me right now, over us, 
is the changing landscape of religious and spiritual life here in America and what that means for the future of the church, the future of Christian life and witness here. I don't perceive it exactly as a Goliath, a threat needing defeat, but it is a source of fear and uncertainty. It is clear that no one can fully understand what is happening, though lots of people are definitely trying. And it's also clear that no one has the detailed plan all mapped out to ensure that out of the ashes of all that is dying in American Christianity right now arises an authentic and transformative Christian witness that truly leads people toward life. The one thing that does seem clear in all of this is that if we are relying on our power, if we are the ones claiming control of this situation, there is no question in my mind that we are going to miss the mark and miss it by a long shot. The good news this day is that it is not just up to us. The good news this day is that we don't have to rely on our power alone. On February 8th, at a chapel service on Asbury University's campus in Wilmore, Kentucky, the speaker that day exhorted the students to become the love of God by experiencing the love of God and closed with a prayer asking God to revive us by your love. A group of about 20 students lingered after the service and began to worship and pray for one another. Thomas Lyons, writing for The Atlantic this week, reported that according to the students, as they stayed and prayed, an unexplainable, surreal peace descended upon the room. As minutes stretched into hours, many students who had gone to class returned to the auditorium when they heard what was going on. They'd eventually be joined by faculty, staff, and community members who trickled in to participate in worship and prayer. In the days since, a stream of pilgrims has made its way to Wilmore. All of the auditorium's almost 1,500 wooden flip seats are occupied. The walls and archways leading into the gathering space are crammed with people hungering to join in. Over the past two weeks, the university estimates that some 50,000 people have come to experience what is happening at Asbury. People came not knowing where they were going to stay to a community not built to handle crowds of this size. It's a town of 6,000 people. As reports of Salvation Army sending trucks with pizza and water to feed the multitude and another food truck coming to serve free pancakes to those leaving and arriving in the middle of the night. As those reports came in, I couldn't help but think of crowds gathered in the middle of nowhere, seeking Jesus and the few loaves and fish that managed to feed them all. The students at the heart of this revival are unlikely candidates for leaders of a Christian awakening in America. 
as they are part of the least Christian generation in the history of our country, with one-third of Generation Zers reporting as religiously unaffiliated. Their similarity to David is not only that they are young or limited to their being unlikely people to step into the roles that they did, just like David shed the traditional tools for battle, the students haven't turned to the recent tools of American Christianity's trade. As things unfolded in that chapel, there was no flashy worship, no big-name speakers, no political agenda. Celebrities who arrived have been welcomed in, but not invited to the stage. Christian nationalists who came toting their flags were invited in, but asked to leave those flags at the door. For student leaders named that what was happening in that space was about Jesus, not America. At the end of his article, Lyons, a seminary professor who spent nine days in Wilmore, writes, These students have chosen hiddenness and simplicity selfless hospitality, and a relentless hunger for Jesus. I know this gives me hope for the future. And then he adds, it should give you hope as well. Friends, hear this good news. We are not in control. It is not by our own power that we face anything that looms in our lives and world today. Friends, hear this good news. The Spirit of God is alive and on the move. And if we would trust that Spirit, relinquish control, expect the impossible, lay down our fear, my gut is that that spirit is ready and willing to move in the most unlikely of places, in the most unexpected of ways. Friends, hear this good news. If we trust who God created us to be, shedding any ill-fitting armor and faithfully listen to God's call, Y'all, there is no doubt in my heart nor my soul that God has a part for you to play as you face whatever Goliath has captured your attention. And when it comes to the evolving spiritual ecosystem in which we find ourselves, y'all, there is no doubt in my heart nor my soul that God has a part for you and I to play as out of the ashes, God raises up an authentic and transformative Christian witness that will offer healing to the brokenhearted, community to the lonely, sustenance for the hungry, an authentic and transformative Christian witness that will lead people, truly lead people toward life. Amen. Amen.